0: We need far more participation, far more deliberative democracy. We need to temper representative democracy with popular deliberative democracy so that day to day, we can affect the decisions that are made in our name.
1: Hello and welcome to episode nine of what comes after, what comes next, with me, James Shaw, Minister for Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. In 2009, in the wake of the collapse of the global climate talks in Copenhagen, my guest this week, the writer and activist George Mombio, wrote, This is the moment at which we turn and face ourselves, here in the plastic corridors and the crowded stalls, amongst impenetrable texts and withering procedures, Humankind decides what it is, and what it will become. It chooses whether to continue living as it has done, until it must make a wasteland of its home, or to stop and redefine itself. This is about much more than climate change. This is about us. Action to tackle the climate crisis has always been about us. It's about passing on to our children and grandchildren a planet that is better for what we did. It's about living within our means with tomorrow in mind. I opened by asking George what, if any, progress he thinks that we've made since he wrote that article in 2009. As you'll hear, whilst he remains deeply concerned about the dangers of climate breakdown, he is clear that we can change, that we can do things differently. What I loved about talking to George is that he nearly always connects the risk of climate change with a solution. He knows a better future is possible, but he also has a clear idea about how we get there. Before we start, I should say we had to record this episode on Zoom, so the sound quality isn't quite as good as normal. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.com. Please also tell a friend about the show or give us a rating or review as it will help others to discover the podcast. Now here's my conversation with George Mombio.
0: So I've been working in this field now for 35 years and it hasn't um, been a very gratifying business to be in um there's it's been extremely frustrating because throughout that time i mean really starting when i began in 1985 i was saying there's some really serious stuff here we ought to be paying attention to and if we carry on on the trajectory we're on we're going to destroy our life support systems and 35 years later i'm still saying that and in many ways, we've gone backwards. What we've seen really is the cumulative effects of economic growth, of rising consumption, um, of our penetrating every corner of land and ocean to extract all we can from it and pour it into the human economy, turn it into products and services that can be sold, sold back to us, and turning real wealth, natural wealth, the, the um, wealth from which we all depend, into illusory wealth. Wealth that you can count, but that actually can't keep us alive. And it's that huge and underlying process, rather than any minor products of the process, that's the thing we have relentlessly to focus on because it's that which is driving us relentlessly towards the cliff's edge and unfortunately so many times in this 35 years i've seen the focus narrowing and narrowing further saying well we've got to do something about plastic or um here's a great um, micro techno fix that we can use to sort out the fishing crisis. Like, look, here someone's um, designed an implement for removing um, hooks from sharks mouths. Well, great, yeah, that's, you know, I'm not dissing any of this stuff, but it's at completely the wrong order of magnitude. Um, we we um, aren't engaging with the underlying drivers, which are an economic system based on growth, and a growth and consumption and the expectations that that system and the ideologies that surround it create that we can all just have more and more stuff and less and less life and until we grapple with those and that does mean redefining the way we see ourselves redefining our place on earth redefining what we consider progress to be wealth to be well-being to be we're not even going to start arresting this catastrophe and creating a better world
2: i understand that you in the uk have been quite a, a big advocate of the rewilding movement a sort of a uh, a re a re-naturification of of the countryside and I'm, I'm comparing it to some work we're doing here on afforestation, um, although it's I, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as, as rewilding uh, what we're doing here. We are planting a lot of trees. Can, can you tell me about, about that, about rewilding?
0: Mm. So one of the problems, one of the many problems that environmentalism runs into is that it's often perceived as a negative movement. You know, um, what do we want? A slightly less crap world than we would otherwise have. Um, and, And that really, more or less, is what the promise of much of environmentalism boils down to. Things won't be quite as bad if you follow these procedures which we're suggesting. And what we desperately need is a positive environmentalism. It's not to say by any means that we don't fight the bad stuff. We have to fight the bad stuff but we should do so within the framework of imagining a better world than the one we have today. And we need to clear the bad stuff out of the way so that we can get to that better world. And um, one important aspect of this positive positive environmentalism, and, and there are lots of other really great examples of positive environmentalism, I believe is rewilding, which is means the mass restoration of ecosystems, the reintroduction of missing species, the um, reignition of ecosystem processes and dynamics. Um, and it's it's a fascinating and wonderful and inspiring subject, not least because as soon as you begin to engage with it, you begin to see that nature is even more wonderful than we imagined it was because so many of the natural systems which we've been studying have actually been severely depleted and radically altered by human action and that depletion makes them less surprising less serendipitous than um the self-willed state of nature is for instance if you remove the large predators you really cut off a lot of the dynamic and ever-changing functions of a natural system Um, and it turns out it has knock-on effects all the way down the food chain um, just making the whole thing a lot more boring and a lot more predictable and nature is a highly complex system with emergent and adaptive characteristics but we have tried to treat it and manage it as if it were a simple system And in doing so, we have radically simplified it and made it a much less thrilling system than than, than it is, so to speak, in nature. So by setting aside large areas of land and sea and saying we're not going to have extractive activities in these places, we're going to allow these places to self-organise, which is what ecosystems do extremely well, We're going to front load our interventions by bringing back missing species, by taking down fences um, in places which are too far from the nearest seed source, planting little clumps of trees, but ideally you'd allow natural regeneration to happen. Maybe in a few places, we have to get on top of invasive species. I know that's particularly an issue in New Zealand, Um, but um, certainly in cases like the UK, invasive species Um, Much more of a problem when you've got rid of um, large numbers of your native species and you've left a whole load of empty ecological niches. Um, And and then having done those early interventions, the idea is that you step back to the greatest extent possible and let nature take its course. Um, now, the greatest extent possible tends to be governed by political and social issues, not by ecological constraints. So, for instance, uh, we could have wolves living quite happily out of the dustbins in London tomorrow if, if we wanted to. Um, there's no ecological reason why you can't have wolves in London, but there might be one or two political reasons. Um, and so the the, the real... Um, issues with rewilding are negotiating the difficult political and cultural stuff required to um, create that shift and we're all attached to deep metaphors about what civilization looks like and what human progress looks like and basically they don't include wolves so, if you are, want, if you want to if you want nature to thrive again, we we have to operate at the cultural level, the social level, the political level.
2: There, there are, of course, plenty of foxes in London. Uh, well, mm-hmm. I, I lived I lived there for quite a long time, and and mm-hmm. one of the most um, one of the things I'll never forget was I was walking to work one day across London Bridge, which of course has tremendously heavy foot traffic. You know, it's a mm-hmm. huge thoroughfare. Uh, and there was a fox about halfway across the bridge, um, which really did have a look on its face of, "What am I doing here?" You know, <laughs> it,
0: you know. It, it's not the only one. I've seen an awful lot of people crossing that bridge with the same look. Right. In fact, <laughs> in fact, in in um in, in the wasteland, um T. S. Eliot's uh, wonderful oracular poem, um he talks about people crossing London Bridge and says. I never knew death had undone so many, quoting from Dante's, um, Dante's Inferno. <laughs> so, so, yeah, yeah, there's not just a fox which has that look. Well, indeed. Uh, so let me just compare what
2: you were just saying about, about rewilding as this uh, very hopeful, uh, positive environmentalism with, with what you first were saying about you know, the, the sort of sense of tragedy, I guess, over the last 35 years that we're not really dealing with the challenge at the scale of the problem. We're kind of biting off little bits and pieces of it. Mm. How, how, do, how, do, how, does, how does rewilding fit with, you know, what the sort of need for a, a total reorganisation of our socioeconomic system?
0: Well, the first step is to picture the world in which we want to live. And the world in which I want to live, and I suspect a lot of other people would like to live too, is a world in which we are far more cooperative. We help each other much more. Um, uh, We engage in the sort of mutual aid, which in fact we've seen quite a lot of during the pandemic. That's been um, a really wonderful thing to see amid all the horror of it. Um, A world in which we don't allow a small handful of people to grab the lion's share for themselves. Um, But resources are much more evenly distributed. Wealth, genuine wealth is more evenly distributed in which everybody has good life chances. No one can compromise the life chances of other people by taking resources on which those other people will depend and in which the living world is thriving and and can um, um, survive alongside us um, without compromising our well-being but um, uh, ensuring that the millions of other species with which we live have a fair chance of getting through this century and the centuries that follow Um, and and that does require a rethinking of everything I was going to say almost everything, but then I was spooling through my mind, thinking: Is there anything it doesn't require a rethinking of? And I couldn't; nothing immediately came to mind. I think it's fair to say everything, because it is a completely different worldview. And and by a worldview, I, I don't just mean a political opinion. I, I mean an entire um, uh, uh, framing of thought. Uh, There's a wonderful book that explores this um, called The Patterning Instinct by Jeremy Lent, which I believe is the most important book I've read this century. Um, uh, It's it's, uh, it's so interesting and radical that it took me about six months to read because every page was like, oh, well, that's just changed my whole life. I better, better read that page again. Um, and it just shows he's a cognitive historian. He brings together cognitive science with the history of thought, and and he shows how the way we see the world uh, governs the way we treat the world and the way we behave within that world. And these um, uh, we cre- we lay down um, across generations. Um, uh, thinking paths which he describes like paths through a field of long grass they're much easy it's much easier to walk down the paths that have already been created than to hack your way um, through the long grass and create a new path for yourself and so we end up uh, effectively on railway tracks just replicating patterns of thought for thousands of years, in, in some of these cases, it's quite uh, what what's quite remarkable about the book is that he he traces some of our deepest belief systems back to um, thought processes which have their roots several millennia ago, and shows how these govern our way of approaching the world. And um, but how it doesn't have to be like that. There are completely different ways of thinking, and to illustrate that, he shows the difference between. European and Indian thinking on one hand and Chinese thinking on the other and how um, the, the those two sort of mega cultures perceive the world in completely different ways or, or, or did um, and, until a couple of centuries ago, um, just a, a totally different approach to looking at the world. And he's not saying we all got to adopt the Chinese system. He says what it shows is that if you want to create a completely different structure of thought, you can and he proposes a new structural thought, which he um, calls ecological civilization, um, which really redefines our relationship with the rest of the world and our place in it. And, um, and, and to me, that has got to be fundamental to this creation of, of a better world. We, we create it first in our minds and then we create it, it materially. I,
2: I was, I'm fascinated by that. And I, one of the things I've been wondering about is whether we're cognitively set up to be able to deal with the climate crisis. I mean, that, you know, I'm not a scientist, but friends of mine who are uh, tell me that um, humans are hardwired to be able to deal with a very immediate threat Right from our very earliest uh, ancestors, uh, in order to avoid being eaten, um, but very bad at dealing with uh, gradual um, onset crises like like the climate crisis. That sort of the you know the parable of the boiling frog. We we just don't we can't factor in time as a as a function. Um, But what you're suggesting with the patterning instinct is we can effectively overcome that weakness through the, I I guess, a a sort of a paradigm approach.
0: I think what it shows us is that this hard wiring is culturally determined, not neurologically determined. We all know the old phrase... um, Um, neurons that fire together wire together and by following these paths through the long grass we we are creating neural networks almost so which parallel those paths those social paths in our own minds and and we lay down networks which are certainly eminently challengeable but it's hard to challenge you know it's cognitive effort is required and you have to um take a massive step back and say, do I want to go in this direction or do I want to go in another direction? And doing that by yourself is very difficult because um, change change means effort and it means pain. Effort means pain in in resource terms, in sort of bodily resource terms, and we tend to avoid it if we can. Um, So my conclusion from that is this is something much better done together that we work together to create um, a, a, a new way of looking at the world and looking at our place in it, which then allows each one of us a, an easier path to follow, which isn't the path that's already been laid down for us. We, we create together a, 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 a new path in, in very sort of literal neurological terms, a, a new neural pathway which permits us to to see the world differently. So I guess I could say I'm quite suspicious of these notions of things being hardwired. Um, One of the things we, those of us who've studied evolutionary biology have to recognize is plasticity. That um, what we've been bequeathed by natural selection is a highly adaptive brain one which is extremely plastic in response to environmental stimulus in in the broadest possible meaning of that term. Um, And, um, and and permits us to change our approach when circumstances demand. But the problem I think we face is social conditioning, which says there's only one way of, of seeing the world and only one way of being and, um, follow this path because it's the broad and easy path. Um, but the steep and narrow one is one you have to hack out yourself. Um, and everyone's gonna say that you're a weirdo and there's gonna be loads of social opprobrium in the media and, and elsewhere, if you uh, if you try to follow that path. And, and so this is another reason why we should help each other to do so. Um, one of the um, very interesting things I I came across when researching my last book which is called Out of the Wreckage was just looking at the the myths of 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 human values Um, this uh, very potent but completely wrong idea put about particularly by neoliberal thought that we are innately selfish and greedy um, and that we um, uh, and and that this is a good thing which should be encouraged. It's a very Hobbesian notion. Um, but actually, what you see repeatedly from neuroscience, from evolutionary biology, from anthropology, from um, uh, social psychology, and there's loads of experimental um, research and, and um, observation on this, um, is, is that, yes, we all have a bit of selfishness and greediness, but those aren't our dominant values. Um, and in fact, our dominant values are um, care for other people in our families, in our communities, people in general, um, empathy, concern for others, wanting to be a good citizen, to to fit into your society. Um, all these are more powerful values than selfishness and greed. And in fact, it's it's remarkable how those myths of selfishness and greed have survived, despite. All the evidence to the contrary, you know, where, where you know people are constantly, in ways we don't even notice, helping each other out. Yeah, you know, even if it's a matter of helping get someone's suitcase on the train. You know, if, if people refused to do it, we would think that was really weird, and that was really antisocial and outrageous behaviour. If, if if an elderly person said, "Could you please help me get my suitcase on the train?" and someone said, no, sod off, you, you, would, you would think, God, what a complete so-and-so that person is. Um, but that's what neoliberal thought would predict. That's how people would behave. But it's not at all how people behave, uh, except for many of our leaders. Um, and and uh, broadly speaking, to put it crudely, we're a society of altruists governed by psychopaths there are obviously some exceptions to that uh, but but there's a company accepted, of course yeah well of course absolutely <laughs> <laughs> absolutely but but um there's but uh, there's a lot of research on this showing that um many um uh, powerful people are radically different in terms of their psychological profiles to the social norm and and in fact there was one study uh, of um of corporate chief executives, um, showing that um, uh, they uh, um, had a, a higher rate of psychopathy than inmates of um, this prison hospital in the UK called Broadmoor, a notorious prison hospital. In the uh, uh, and even the inmates undergoing um, um, uh, uh, programs for psychopathy. <laughs> so, so it was, I, I mean, we are you know, very poorly represented by people in positions of leadership. And as you said, by no means everyone, there are some wonderful exceptions, but you know, if you look at Donald Trump, if you look at Jair Bolsonaro, if, if you look at Boris Johnson, if you look at Rodrigo Duterte, if you look at Narendra Modi, and unfortunately many other national leaders you'll see people who really deviate massively from the human norms of kindness and empathy and altruism and, and do almost represent that neoliberal ideal of the totally selfish man. Well, I, I mean, there's a lot in what you've just been saying,
2: um, and I'd like to come back to some, some, something earlier that you said, but just on that point, in a democracy... How do you, why do you think that occurs? If, you know, this high rate of leadership arriving on the scene that doesn't actually Mm. represent the the general population at large, that, I mean, I know that there are many problems with democracies uh, in terms of the design of voting systems and, you know, the institutions and the role that money plays and all of those sort of things. But it's quite an extraordinary observation to suggest that even in democracies, uh, you end up with this psychopathic leadership.
0: Yes, I mean, we're very trusting and we're very easily manipulated. Um, we, again, we think of ourselves as cynical, but actually most people go with the status quo, whatever that status quo might be. If you lived in the Soviet Union under Stalin, most people went along with Stalin, Stalinism unfortunately in germany also huge numbers of people went along with nazism when hitler was in power um, huge numbers of people in our nations go along with neoliberalism or whatever the dominant ideology might be we get swept along by these social currents and this ties in very much with the way that cognition um, is triggered neural pathways are laid down um, and and the way that people want to fit in you know our our good aspects are recruited and every um, positive psychological aspect has its flip side and and the fact that we are socially minded and we 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 don't want to swim against the current um uh, that can be a very good thing because it means we can all pull together in um, a situation like the coronavirus pandemic and help each other out and not want to be seen to be antisocial, so we wear masks and stuff like that because we we, we don't um, want other people to think badly of us that's all great but the flip side of it is that um we'll go along with prevailing orthodoxies even if those orthodoxies are self-evidently crazy and are against our own best interests and um and so we do get swept along on um our current's that look mad to an outsider you know like electing donald trump or boris johnson I and mean, why would a nation do that to itself and it's a combination of our gullibility and susceptibility but also of extremely effective manipulation by people who have studied politics and studied psychology and studied neuroscience and uh, know uh, very effectively how to exploit our weaknesses and we've seen that particularly with the aggressive use of social media the, the famous case of Cambridge Analytica um, with the uh, Brexit referendum in the UK and indeed with the Donald Trump election in the US and we've subsequently found loads of other elections around the world but they were by no means the only players there's been loads of this stuff going on we saw how manipulation on WhatsApp pretty well won the election for Jaya Bolsonaro. Um, we are seeing how Trump is mobilizing some even more sinister uses of social media and peer-to-peer texting. Um, there's uh, there a big article in The Atlantic recently um, outlining some of their new strategies, and they are really genuinely frightening. You know, these are tools that dictators can only have dreamt of over the years and now here they are in the hands of politicians and most of us are not sufficiently equipped to resist that kind of manipulation i mean people have on the whole very poor political knowledge very little understanding of what's really going on to acquire any useful knowledge in any field requires determined study and and determined study is something that very few people ha- have the time for or the inclination for. There's another interesting book uh, by um, Christopher Achen and um, um, uh, uh, Larry Bartles called, oh, let's see, somewhere, somewhere. I think it's is it Democracy for Realists, I think, something like that. Um, I, anyway, um, in which they talk about the folk theory of democracy which is the idea that um, we judge politicians on their record and we assess their records against each other and we vote for those who best represent our interests. And they say there's no evidence of this ever occurring anywhere on earth. It just doesn't work like that. That's not actually how and why people vote at all. And and we we get swept along on uh, by far less rational and objective impulses, not all of which are bad you know sometimes we think actually this person seems like a, a pretty good person and um and and there's there's a kindness to them there's a decency to them which i want to vote for but of course you can fake that especially um with uh, through sort of careful use of media and social media um and and so we do get swept along and i think part of the problem is that our political systems are not robust in the same way as our ecosystems are not robust, just as um, a political system should be a complex system with emergent and adaptive characteristics where um, people can constantly engage with it and constantly change it and and constantly hold it to account. Instead, we have this highly simplified, centralized, top-down system, which says that politics begins and ends Uh, with the prime minister or the president, um, uh, with um, the help of the legislature, and you out there, you're just pawns. You're allowed to vote every four or five years. Um, and, um, And then, from then on, it's presumed consent. A majority voted for me, so I can therefore do what I like for the next four or five years as long as I can get it through parliament. And you can say, well, we never voted for that, that wasn't even in your manifesto, your platform. It wasn't even there. Um, and they could say, well, uh, but you voted for me. And you say, well, actually, I didn't vote for you. Yeah, but 45% voted for me, and that was enough to put me in power. Therefore, I presume consent for all these other things, which, uh, uh, some of which might have been in the manifesto, and none of us saw it, or we certainly didn't vote on it, and some of which weren't even in the manifesto. Now, we don't accept the principle of of presumed consent in sex. Why should we accept it in politics? And to make politics work and to make us the active demos, which engages intelligently and effectively in politics, we need far more participation, far more deliberative democracy. We need to temper representative democracy with popular deliberative democracy so that... Day-to-day, day, we can affect the decisions that are made in our name and be active political citizens. Now, there's some great examples of this around the world, like the Better Betarikivik programme in Iceland, or Decide Madrid in Spain, or the amazing 15 years of uh, participatory budgeting in the Brazilian city of Porto Alegre. Um, all these show that people can run their own cities and that the cities improved massively as a result. People's lives improved massively. Um, in Porto Alegre, they got rid of the mafia, they got rid of corruption, they got rid of cronyism. The budget was there for the people, and primary health care, all the indices, they went through the roof. Uh, primary education, sanitation, clean water, public transport, the, the whole suite was just massively improved. And Porto Alegre went from being downtrodden capital city, state capitals in, in Brazil to, to number one in the human, human development index as a result of that participatory budgeting. And why don't we all get that? Why can't we all do that at the national level as well as the municipal level? It doesn't, that, that makes sense. Um, and in fact, when you look at it that way, you see this is an outrage that we're not permitted to engage like that. To me, it seems to be a fundamental human right that if a government is acting in our name, it should be constantly responsive to us. And that right to engage, not just once every four or five years, and then you throw away your political responsibility and power um, until the next election. But every day, if we want to, it's not compulsory, but if you want to engage, the opportunity is there. Um, and in a meaningful way which changes decisions, that I believe is a fundamental political right.
2: Not a lot of people who listen to this podcast, I would imagine, have heard of participatory budgeting uh, and what happened in Porto Alegre or some of those other places that you talked about. What, what did they do? Because I mean, here in New Zealand, we have uh, consultative processes for everything the government does. And most people mm. think two things. They prolong the process beyond what anyone can bear, uh, and and mm-hmm. two, no one ever gets listened to anyway. Um, so, yeah, yeah. they you know the sort of reaction is well, why don't you just bloody get on and do it? You know, um, if you weren't yeah, going yeah. to listen to what we were what we were saying anyway. So, mm-hmm. so clearly, what you're describing yeah. is a higher quality
0: than that. Yeah yeah i mean that, that that sounds very similar to the uk case where consultations are a farce i mean yeah you know, for a start the government determines what the questions are and so it'll say you know do you want the road to go through this nature reserve or that nature reserve and the there isn't an option for saying we don't want the road and um, so so it's you end up it's end of pipe you know it's at the end of the process when it should be right at the beginning of the decision making process it doesn't allow for any form of intelligent engagement. It's a yes-no, tick-box exercise. Um, and as you say, they, they're under no obligation to listen. They can just dismiss what, what you say because there isn't a legal obligation for them to to respond intelligently to uh, what, what what the public are, are suggesting. But in Porto Alegre, it's totally different because you've got what is um, a, a basically a, a sort of Rajavan style of decision-making or you had for between um 1989 and 2004 where um decisions are devolved upwards from the neighborhood to the borough to the city through um, a very well-designed process which basically ensures that everybody um ha- has has an equal voice but there is a weighting that more of the budget goes to the poorer areas um you, you, you know, on on top of that, voice. But but what you what you get coming out of it is this incredible level of public engagement. I mean, fifty thousand people a year going to public meetings on it. Um, in Reykjavik, you've got two thirds of the entire population of the city actively engaged in in the political processes for reshaping the city. I It's it, you know that the figures are astounding. And, um, and this is what happens when you treat people like intelligent humans rather than like idiots. People want to engage when they see there's some point in engaging, when they see that their voices will actually change things. But when you're being treated like morons and, and, and you, you know that nothing's going to come of this, well, of course, you, 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 you're, you're not going to switch on to it. And one of the fascinating findings, and this is represented very much in the work of people who pioneered organising, and there's an interesting book by uh, Becky Bond and Zach Exley called um, Rules for Revolutionaries, um, is is that the more you ask of people, the more they they want to give. So, for instance, if you're running a political campaign and you say, uh, yeah, sure, we'll let you stuff some envelopes, or maybe even push those envelopes through people's letterboxes, then people say, oh, right, well, okay. But if you say, we want you to run the local campaign, we're going to devolve the whole campaign to volunteers at the local level, that people will will rip your hand off wanting to to join. They're they're desperate to, to, to get involved because they can see, here's something useful and meaningful I can do. And the uh, and utility and meaning those are other really fundamental human values. Those are things we all need if we're going to have good lives. If we're going to feel good about ourselves, we need to feel useful. We need to feel that what we're doing is meaningful. That it's not just some bullshit activity. And that applies in politics as much as it applies in our working lives. And if you give people big meaningful genuinely useful tasks uh, people leap at the opportunity to take them but if all that's on offer is is really menial and mundane and moronic tasks then you know people will do them because they think oh well you know i need to support the party there's an obligation and stuff so uh, it's not a fantastic book it needed an editor but it's got some amazing and brilliant examples of of how to mobilize effectively
2: that loops back to where we started the conversation about rewilding and the patterning instinct uh, and, and and this idea that uh, we need to completely reorganize the way that we see the world and, and relate to the world and to each other. Um, and I, what I took from that earlier part of the conversation is that you're saying that the rewilding movement is a way of helping to, to reimagine for us to be able to create something that we can see and say, I would like more of that. We would like, we would like more of that. Um, you, you, you were, you were talking about the, the sort of notion around the orders of magnitude of what, of what it is that we, that we have to do. And a lot of what you've been talking about is complex adaptive systems with emergent properties and so on. How on earth are we going to get 9 billion people to adopt an entirely different worldview? I mean, that sounds, A, a like a sort of slightly Orwellian, uh, you know, mind control. Um, I, I know that that's not what you intend at all, but it, it, it's very hard to organize for that. I mean, we are, we, humans are a, a disorganized
0: <laughs> um, species. You don't organize for it, you advocate for it. Um, so this is a slightly different matter to political organizing. Political organizing is, is a second order issue, but um, cognitive organizing, if you like, is, is a first order issue. Um, and and what you do is you make it acceptable to think differently. You, you, you create a, a situation in which you don't feel like a total freak if you've got an entirely different way of looking at the world um, and, and you do that by um, showing that you are prepared to be among those first movers by getting out there and saying actually the way we're seeing the world is, is completely crazy and here's a different way of seeing the world which perhaps makes more sense and so you you help to start creating that new path through the field of long grass. Um, and it hinges on how persuasive you are, on how much you can make those new ideas resonate with people. And a lot of that comes down to the framing you use, the language you use, um, the 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 way in which you say it, but also it's got to be simple, it's got to be clear. Um, and what we see is that ideas can race around the world like wildfire new ideas new ways of seeing things sometimes for good sometimes for ill. but wow you just look at the history of the last hundred years and you'll see how different ideas have gone round at extraordinary speed um and and i mean this is more than ideas obviously it's a whole framework within which ideas happen but i don't see that there's any necessary difference between the transmission of ideas and the transmission of the framework for ideas. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess one of the things I realized having read Jeremy Lent's book was that, you know, I've been groping towards that for a long time, but without that coherent framing of the sort of cognitive adventure that I was on. And I think having that framing, um, will make I hope my efforts and those of others more effective as as we realize that everything we struggle to express is embedded in something else which needs to be expressed and and so um, and and it's that something else those deep root metaphors that those are the things that we engage with now this meshes very nicely with the work on framing Um, that George Lakoff is is famous for with his uh, famous book, Don't Think of an Elephant, Um, but that um, uh, draws on the work of people like Shalom Schwartz um, uh, and and in fact many other really fascinating um, uh, uh, social psychologists and cognitive linguists. Um, and has been used, I think, with great effect by um, a group in the UK called the Public Interest Research Centre, which has sort of shown how we can apply that to environmental and political issues. Yeah, uh, we, they just show we've been framing this all wrong. We've been expressing this in the wrong terms. We've been using our opponent's language and our opponent's thinking to try to say something different. And we're surprised when it doesn't land well with people getting the framing work is uh, getting the framing work right is absolutely essential if we're going to communicate effectively so you know we struggle on and we struggle on in an environment in which there are lots and lots of other people playing including a lot of people who are sponsored by industry to try to do the exact opposite to say um, you know, we must keep burning fossil fuels. We must carry on the way we are. Anything which stops us carrying on the way we are will doom us to living in the Stone Age, in a cave rubbing sticks together. Um, whereas, you know, we now see very clearly that carrying on the way we are, business as usual, is, is a recipe for ruin. We, we end up living in a, a burnt out husk of a planet if we carry on this way. Whereas if we can design an ecological civilization, a whole new way of living in and with the world, we can have a thriving human society within a thriving web of life. And, and again, there's some really great work on this. Um, I know you've had Kate Rayworth on your program um, uh, with her Donut Economics. That's one example of, of the way in which those sorts of ideas can be applied. Um, and you know, this isn't in any way beyond the wit of humankind. We we can totally do this, but we just have to be much better at it than we've been hitherto.
2: You, you said in your uh, 2019 TED Talk uh, that one of the reasons we still have the economic system that we do is because we've not yet come up with a big new political restoration story. Um and I am interested in, in what are those building blocks of that of that narrative that you that you're talking about? It's sort of there are sort of hints and sure. Like you said, so, people like Kate so, and so
0: on. Yeah. So, so so by a restoration story, I mean a narrative framework. Um You've probably heard people say, oh, there's three basic plots, or there's five, or there's seven, or there's nine. There's, there's always an odd number for some reason. Um, and, uh, and the restoration story is definitely, however many basic plots there are, this is one of the basic plots and, and one of the most important. Um, it, it, it's, the story um, goes as follows. Um, uh, the, the world has been thrown into disorder by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humankind but the hero or heroes confront those powerful and nefarious forces against the odds overthrow them and restore harmony to the land we we all know this story it's a harry potter story it's the lord of the Rings story it's a Narnia story it's a bible story it's a story we've heard a thousand times a million times and it happens to be The effective political story, basically no effective political movement uh, promoting new ideas has succeeded without using a version of that restoration story. And the problem that we've been facing is that even though the last story, the neoliberal story, collapsed spectacularly in 2008, because we failed to replace it with a new restoration story with a completely different vision, of restoring harmony to the land, that old failed story is still with us and still dominating our lives. And so what we've got to do is to tell the new story. And I think that new story involves building political community from the grassroots up, bringing society back together. I mean, not just political community, but building effective neighborhood communities uh, amongst Totally different people, you know, bridging communities, not bonding communities. In other words, communities which bring people from lots of different backgrounds together rather than communities of a certain kind of people in opposition to everybody else. Um, and there's a whole science of how you can create those communities. This is what my, my, that, my Out of the Wreckage book is, is, is all about. It's about how, how you create a participatory culture of what practitioners call fit networks. Um, of, of people from all walks of life, acting together to improve their community, their neighborhood, each other's lives. And out of that, a new political framework grows, a participatory framework based on deliberative democracy, not so much based on an ideology, Not saying you know there is only one way of doing of of thinking about politics. You've got to follow what this great man or great woman says, Um, but it's a way of doing politics. It is a participatory way of doing politics, which makes political involvement and activism far more robust than in our very centralized, simplified systems. Um, And and so. If you sort of put it into that framework, you say the world has been thrown into disorder by the powerful and nefarious forces of neoliberalism, um, who by um, tearing down social bonds, by isolating us from each other, by telling us that the only things that count are buying and selling and and getting rich, um, have atomized and ruled. Um, but uh, we the heroes of the story who who are the resurgent communities people coming together to create better lives for ourselves and for each other we will fight those powerful and nefarious forces against the odds overthrow them and restore harmony to the land in the form of highly effective society community life reasserting itself um, but with these, greater goals of a better world for everyone, including its non-human inhabitants. Um, and, and that is, is I think, the basic framework of a restoration story, which potentially could work.
2: And it's very attractive. Uh, I'm really interested in uh, it, it, the comparison between the great financial crisis and what we're having now, um, because in some ways, you know, there, there are some similarities we're spending an astonishing amount of money getting ourselves through the crisis and you know flooding the system with liquidity and there is a sort of a choice about whether to to try and just restore the status quo that we had up until the start of the year uh, or to try and renew and to reimagine something else and one of one of my observations of uh, at least here in our lockdown period there are a lot of people who were really doing it very, very tough. You know, you had your essential workers who essentially were putting themselves in danger by going to work uh, and exposing themselves potentially to the, to the virus. They also tended to be some of our lowest paid workers. We discovered that our essential workers are actually the people that we pay the least uh, in our society.
0: There are also a lot of
2: people who, you know, work in... Um, Uh, the sort of services sector and so on, so adapted fairly easily to working from home um, and spent time with their cats and dogs and with their children and with each other and noticed uh, that we had renewed bird life in the middle of our cities once all the cars had uh, stopped moving about and so on. And and there was a, a brief moment there where we did stop because we were forced to for four weeks, which is... And meditative terms, quite a long, quite a long reflective moment, uh, far longer than any of us are used to in our normal lives. Where we did stop and say, you know, there are some things here that are actually really nice. And I've had a number of mm. my friends say to me, "Could we do that every year, just for one month? You know, send everybody off to their bedrooms, and 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 sort of take take that moment." And and I, you know, I wonder if you've seen any thing, either in the UK or anywhere else in the world, where that's been turned into anything a little more enduring. So I I think that that's what we're sort of in that moment right now, where we're we're saying, well, having gotten ourselves through the worst of the pandemic crisis and avoiding community transmission, we are in a state where we've got some some choices now about, about the future. And also, frankly, the status quo isn't coming back because, you know, fundamentally some really big things have changed about the world, Um, but we're just, it it feels like we're in an open moment, but we haven't made a choice yet.
0: Yeah. The opinion polls are remarkable. Consistently they're showing only 12 or 13% of people want to return the way things were that we want a different life that we want a life where we don't have to buzz around like blue ass flies all the time just to survive um where um we we want more peace in our lives more relaxation more tranquility and of course we could have that you know there's so much liquid wealth around um even if you used only half of it but distributed it properly you know we could all have more time off we could all have a better quality of life um and and one where we see more of our children and um and and more of our friends and less of our work colleagues which i think some, a lot of people would welcome but but where there's just less time um not doing what you want to in life and more time doing what you do want to do we all need a bit of that, I think. And there's a very, very big public appetite for it. I think there's also a big public appetite for sustaining the mutual aid and community support that we've seen during this pandemic. I mean, we want good government as well. We desperately need that to look after us. Uh, you know, the first role of government must be to protect us. And I'm afraid in the UK here, we, we, uh, uh, that government just hasn't fulfilled the role at all um and 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 we really really want change that's what all the opinion polls say the issue is power can we stop those who are powerful today from thwarting that desire for change and and to stop them we have very effectively to advocate for the better world that we want we have to know exactly what it is that we want and how we're going to go about getting it and certainly yeah that's one of my current tasks alongside trying to hold governments to account and power to account in general it's not enough just to oppose them you have to articulate your own vision thank you very
1: much for listening and thank you again to george mombio for joining me Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Next week, I'll be speaking to the former California State Senator, Fran Pavley, about state-level action in the United States. See you then. podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.